You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of the Attacking Scrum podcast. This one is all about rugby mavericks and who better to speak to about rugby mavericks than the author of Rugby's Greatest Mavericks, Mr Luke Upton. So I caught up with Luke earlier on this week, um, massive Welsh rugby fan, written a couple of books before which um, which you may well have come across and uh, really, really great to have a chat with him about uh, yeah about all things maverick. Um Anyone who's listened to the podcast at any point over the last six years will know I love a, a flair player, but it's not just flair players we talk about. We talk about some of those mavericks off the pitch as well and kind of what the future is for, for those kind of players. So, uh, yes, absolutely, uh, absolutely great book. I really genuinely um, enjoyed it. So if you get an opportunity, um, head on to all good bookstores or um, even the bad big online one that we all know um, and get yourself a copy just in time for uh, for Christmas as well. So that's it from me. If you enjoy this episode, then please leave us uh, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your pods. And uh, don't forget, as always, you can follow us on social media at Attacking Scrum. To be honest, Twitter's the only one that I really use these days. So, uh, so yeah, that's the best place to get hold of us. And while you're on there, you might well have an opportunity to win a copy of the book as well. We'll be running a competition there from Friday onwards and there's a chance to win some copies of the book. So, uh, yeah, be sure to check that out as well. But in the meantime, sit back, relax and enjoy this chat with Luke Upton. Liner steps inside, swallowed by the All Blacks. Bar Jones, Campisi, David Campisi, David Campisi all the way. A great try from the leading try scorer in world rugby, David Campisi came across. Welcome to a special episode of the Attacking Scrum podcast. Really, really excited about this one, and I'm delighted to say I am joined by Luke Upton, the author of Rugby's Greatest Mavericks. How are you doing, Luke? 
Yeah, very good. Thanks for thanks for getting me on the show, Jed. First time, a long time listener, first time, uh, first time guest. Those those long time listeners are few and far between. So uh, so it's as much an honour for me as it is uh, as it is for you, Luke. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. I re- I'm I um I'm not contractually bound to say this at all. I really enjoyed the book. It was an absolutely fantastic read. So. Uh, Thank you, uh, thank you um, for for sending the, the copy in advance. Um, yeah, the, the pages just flew by. Um, I suppose my first question is what what attracted you to the uh, to the concept of of writing about rugby's greatest mavericks in the first place? Yeah, it's a good a good question. I mean, I'm a big you know a big rugby fan, sort of lifelong lifelong rugby fan. Um, and my first job was uh, was selling lottery tickets uh, down at St Helens uh, in the the glory days before regional rugby. So when you could see uh, you know Scott Gibbs and Mark Taylor and Colin Chavis and uh, the like playing. So you know always been into rugby, um, and then started writing a couple of uh, started writing a couple of books a few years ago. Um, me and a, a friend uh, started a very silly uh, Gavin Henson parody account. Uh, about 10, 10 years ago now, um, called for, I think we changed the name a few times for various uh, for various reasons, shall we say? Um, but uh, yeah, we ran ran as a Gavin Henson parody account, which recently just changed actually to to Scrum Dingers. Um, if anyone's wondering what that weird account is in their in their timeline, Gavin Henson is now you know running an excellent uh, sort of vegan friendly gastro pub in the Vale of Glamorgan, so he's no longer a rich seam of of content for a for a parody account um so yeah ran that um sort of business or sort of journalist business media by by training uh, and then a couple of years ago wrote a, another silly thing called absolutely huge which was a sort of spoof uh autobiography uh for, of a of a player who was who was in no way like gavin henson uh, for legal reasons uh and then a couple of years later uh a lawyer who published that said would you be interested in writing a book about hard, um, sort of hard men of world rugby, which I did, uh, and that that sort of did all right. Um, and then I guess so about two years ago, I was I wasn't really thinking of doing a, a sequel to it or anything, but I you know I've always liked the characters of, of the game. I've always liked the stories. You know, not not really into stats or or data or anything like that. You know, I like the people in it. And then I was watching um, uh, the. Uh, Chicago Bulls documentary on um, Netflix, um, uh, Last Dance. And, you know, I think, I mean, obviously loads of people watched it. It was on during COVID. So, you know, everyone, you know, I would never have watched a basketball documentary normally, but obviously didn't have anything else to do. So watched that and I, you know, absolutely loved it. And I, I, seeing how sort of Michael Jordan and, you know, Scotty Pippen and, you know, all the different guys in it all were so different were kind of came together and how well they were managed and everything just got me thinking a bit about sort of rugby mavericks and how they, you know, they often aren't managed that well and have, you know, a lot of them sort of burn out and, and that kind of thing. And yeah, it sort of led me to the idea for the book and spoke to a and that, you know, they thought it was, you know, an all right idea. Uh, and then about, yeah, but I guess 18 months later, um, here we are 20, 20 mavericks from around the world from the last sort of 80, 90 years. Yeah, it's a real interesting mix that you've got in there as well. So, you know, there's perhaps um, some players you would expect to feature the David Campese of this world. And then, you know, other, other stories, people like, like Non Evans and, and Manny Cunningham, who, you know, perhaps wouldn't be the first that spring to mind. How did you go about kind of choosing the 20? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. There's, you know, there's no science behind it. There's no no algorithm or anything like that. Um, I was just looking for, for great stories, really, and, you know, very grateful, you know, a lot of um, great Welsh sort of publisher, you know, gave me that sort of freedom to, to look into stories, make a, make a long list, and then, and then choose 20 from there. So what I was looking for was people who, who've sort of gone their own way in rugby, a sort of, you know, they're sort of free spirits and yeah, some of them, you know, some of them are, are players who are sort of, you know, known for their, for their flair. So, I mean, David Campesi, obviously a big character off the pitch, but you know, a flat player and, you know, I guess uh, Finn Russell, kind of similar, but you know, is known for his on the pitch. Um, Sarevi from Fiji, you know, again, sort of an attacking player, but then I also looked at other players who, who were sort of really interesting off it. So, you know, Jean-Pierre Reeve, who was, you know, not a flair player, you know, an incredibly talented, combative figure, um, but is also now a sort of world-renowned artist and has written books about art and rugby um, and is a sort of really interesting character there. People like, um, you know, Christophe Dominici, who was, again, sort of a flair player, but had his sort of, you know, things off the pitch. And then, yeah, bringing it right through to people who, I guess, players who maybe are a little less less known. Um, I mean, Heather Moyes, who is a, a Canadian player. Um, she's, sort of, you know, a fantastic player for Canada. Uh, I think she's their all-time leading try scorer. Um, but she also won two gold medals at Winter Olympics, and she basically bounced between being a gold medal Olympian and uh, and being a great rugby player. And I, you know, I spoke to her, and you know, it's fascinating to hear how she managed all those things. And then, yeah, someone like Marnie Cunningham, who a lot of people wouldn't have, wouldn't have heard of, but he was a as a player, he kind of had a quite a good career, but a very short career. He he sort of packed it in. An Irish guy in the fifties, nineteen fifties, um, who packed it in um, to become a priest. All of a sudden, a surprise for everyone, became a priest. But then what was interesting about him was that he returned to to Munster. He was a Munster boy, um, played for Cork and, and Munster and Ireland, um, and protested at an anti-apartheid, uh, as an anti-apartheid protester at a Munster South Africa game. So he was outside the ground and people were recognising him as a, you know, as an old boy of the club there in his Catholic priests um, garb and I thought he was just fascinating again I, I spoke to his nephew and got a full story about him about why he did what he did and everything so yeah really lucky to have a you know to be able to sort of choose great stories and and it was a real privilege to sort of you know to jump into sort of 20 people's lives and, and learn a little bit about the world that they were in and you know what what drove them and you know what they achieved and I guess sometimes what they didn't achieve. Yeah those stories are fascinating actually and I you know I looked at the the 20 on the uh, on on the index as I opened the book and thought, oh, I know I'm going to enjoy reading about Sirevi and, and Campesi. And it was those stories, actually, that uh, kind of the people like Marnie Cunningham that, that kind of really, um, that, that really drew me in. And I think one thing that's interesting, and you've touched on it there, is, you know, it isn't, it isn't just about being a maverick on the, on the pitch. This isn't just the 20 best flair players. It's, it's, um, about so much more than that. And and I found the kind of the political angle there was, was really interesting. So not just Marley Cunningham, but someone like David Pocock as well. And um, particularly at this at this point in time, you know, we've got a, a World Cup in Qatar less than uh, less than a week away uh, in football and various other things going on in the world. I was kind of keen to get your take, you know, how closely do you or how, how intertwined do you think that that sport and politics are uh, in, in this day and age? I think it's a good question, and I think for a lot of a lot of rugby players um, or just athletes in general, I think they they just keep them separate. You know, I think they just don't get involved. Um, 
I think they, you know, the Qatar, the Qatar Olympics, the Qatar World Cup is obviously going on in a, in a week or so, um, but will probably pass largely without incident. Um, so I think it takes a particular type of player to get involved in, in politics because you know that you're opening up yourself to, you know, an extra layer of, of abuse and, and grief and stress. I mean, David Pocock, again, you know, he's as on the player. He's, you know, a hell of a player, not a flair player, you know, incredibly hard tackling, defensive, um, martial, um, but throughout his career, from a you know from a very young age, he he sort of fostered a, a, a career of, sort of social activism. So he's you know he he chained himself to a um, some building machinery that was trying to destroy an Aboriginal um, burial ground to build a big mine. Um, he supported um, same sex marriage. Um, didn't get married to his uh, now wife until. Australia gave legal equality um, and kind of various other things. And he's, he's, you know, he's done this in parallel to his career and he has got grief for it. I mean, he's a popular figure in Australia. He's just been elected a, a senator at the age of like 33, 34. Um, but there is an element of, you know, A, he's a bit of a windbag or a bit self-righteous um, because he's choosing these things, he's, he's had that criticism, uh, and then there's criticism that he's a hypocrite as well, because he uh, he's a kind of a, a climate activist, but he was you know wore a shirt with contests on the front um, and has travelled around the world to do speeches and things like that. So, you know, like anyone, I think who who puts a head above the parapet, they you know they they open up to a lot of criticism. But yeah, I've got a lot of respect for him. He's a hell of a player. And he's, you know, he's he's made difficult choices to to do what he does, and I think it's really exciting to think what what he does next because he's only, you know, early thirties. He's a household name. He's a senator now, and well, the world is oyster. I think. I know, and it's so funny to think of that, isn't it? Because I remember what would this have been two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, playing Australia in Cardiff, and just one. It was one of the rare occasions where they didn't beat us by a point. Um, which is why I think it stands out. But the other thing that stood out that day was it was just, you know, it was one of his very early caps and he was just clamped to the ball the whole day. Every time Wales took the ball into contact, it was, it was oh, it's either a penalty or a turnover and Pocock was at the heart of it. And you just think at that point in time, it's like, oh God, the Aussies have unearthed another talent. You know, knowing nothing about him as an individual and then, you like you say, you fast forward 10, 12 years and he's a, uh, and he's a he's a senator. So uh, sorry, senator. Um, is that the right? Is that, what, is that yeah, right? yeah, yeah. He's a senator. Yeah, getting, yeah. Conf- getting confused, getting confused myself here with the uh, various elections around the world. But yeah, it's you know it's fascinating to see those and th- those stories. Um, I found really interesting. Um, I, I think with his 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 early life is is interesting as well because I knew he was you know I knew he was from you know Zimbabwe, but um, you know his family had a, a farm there and they were. Um, well, they had to flee effectively when Mugabe did his sort of disastrous, you know, land changes about 20 years ago. So they had neighbours who were killed and, and that kind of thing. So he sort of came to Australia as a, you know, as an immigrant, as a refugee. Um, and yeah, so he's got, you know, in his, his interesting start to his life and then, you know, started playing rugby. And I think, I think within about five years of arriving in Australia, I think he was, you know, he was playing for, for the country. But yeah, really interesting guy. Um, and yeah, off the field activism in quite a stark contrast to <laughs> incredible focus and discipline and, you know, te- tough as teak on the pitch. But yeah, I like, I like him a lot. I, I did try and speak to him, but uh, he was campaigning for a Senate election. So speaking to a, a, some Welsh guy <laughs> wasn't a priority for him, which is probably fair enough. 
That's it. Maybe, maybe we'll get a maybe you get in for the for the set. You get a quote for the second edition. Um, yeah. Um, also, as well, what what I found really interesting was a lot of the choices in there. You know, very complex characters as well. Did you get the impression that like a a Di Bishop or a James Small or a non Evans that they kind of needed that needed the rugby field as a as an outlet to kind of express themselves? Yeah, hundred um, percent. I mean, yeah, a lot, a lot of them. I think, I think, like any, like anyone or any anything, when you start looking at it in detail, it becomes a lot more, you know, a lot more complex. Um, but yeah, for a lot of them, rugby, you know, I wouldn't say saved, but mm. I certainly think that it gave them an outlet. I mean, James Small was a, you know, was an angry, you know, an angry young man, um, and rugby was a, a sort of a channel for for him. Um, you know, Non Evans, who I interviewed, and you know, she was great. Um, was you know. Not exactly you know, hyperactive, but isn't quite the right word. But you know, a child who was just on the go all the time, doing loads of different sports and everything. And you know, rugby was an outlet for her. Um, I think that there is a sort of a, a, a sort of mental health aspect as well that that runs through quite a lot of the the selection. Um, I mean, Christoph Dominici, obviously, you know, committed suicide um, a few years ago, and you know, he, he struggled with sort of mental health all his life. And for him, rugby was a, you know, was a release and a purpose. Um, and when that was gone, and he was he was let down very badly by a few people after in his in his retirement. Um, so for him, it was you know. It was an outlet. I think, um, you know, Ray Gravel as well, someone that will be, you know, hugely familiar to every single person listening to this pod, you know, beloved, beloved figure and, you know, a big part of my sort of childhood on, you know, BBC and Espedarek and everything. And, you know, but I didn't really realise that he, you know, he had a tough childhood. His, his father had had also, you know, committed suicide when he was young and, you know, the young, young Ray Gravel found the body and it's, you know, it's, it's tough to sort of read this even, you know, coldly sort of 40, 50 years on and speaking to uh, some of the book launch actually, who was sort of broadly speaking the same age as Ray Gravel and I had no idea that he'd had, you know, he'd had that sort of trauma as a, as a youngster and then how he was always, you know, always quite unsure as a, as a, as a player as well like I, I spoke to Steve Fenwick obviously you know, a great partner with him and a really good chat with him about Gravel and you know 500 odd games for Cletley and the Lions and, and Wales and everything but before every game he still doubted himself and he needed a bit of g up and you know and it's sort of interesting to think someone who seemed to be the most confident man in the world still you know had his sort of had his things but yeah I mean everyone loves Ray Gravel and it's funny everyone I've spoken to about the Ray Gravel chapter I said, oh, I've got a Ray Gravel story. I met him in, and you name it, you know, like he did something that we, but he was in a car park and somewhere he was talking to someone, you know, such a, such a, such a beloved figure. And I do wish I'd been able to, you know, to have interviewed him for it because that would have been, that would have been a very fun hour, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely no doubt about that. Um, I was going to ask you as well, kind of, um, you obviously, as I've said there, you go into all different kinds of territory and, um, was there kind of one that you enjoyed writing about the most? Not necessarily, you know, as a player, but but when you were writing those chapters, was there one that, that you kind of, uh, yeah, really enjoyed doing? Um, I mean, I think that, yeah, I liked the, the Gravel one was good. He's, you know, he's such, a, such a fun figure to write about and, you you know, you bring in a bit of sort of Welsh culture in the sort of 60s and 70s and things. I think the, the Marnie Cunningham, the, the priest, the player turned priest, 
I think was great because that's that's a story that's not really been been told um, before. So I spoke to his family in Ireland, and you know that that story is now sort of out there. Um, I I found I found the James Small chapter kind of really you know really interesting. Um, I think that that you know that era is particularly interesting. I mean, you know, he came in one of the first wave of sort of post-apartheid players basically played in the, you know, the first couple of games where, where they were allowed to play internationally again. But again, the sort of the complexities that come in there, because he, you know, he was coming out of the apartheid era, but he was from a, a British heritage, not a Dutch heritage, uh, or Afrikaans heritage, I should say. So he had those sort of contentions there. And even though he's a bit of a bad boy, you know, he really connected with the, you know, the other African culture that, that came into the game after the end of apartheid. And, you know, I thought he was really, you know, he was really fascinating and, you know, he had his bad, he had his bad times. He did some bad stuff as well. And, you know, that's in the chapter as well. It's on, you know, it's on record that he had problems with drink and drugs and with partners. Um, but I spoke to uh, Joel Stransky for that chapter and he was, you know, he spoke you know, quite honestly about him because he wasn't a, you know, he wasn't an angel, um, you know, but he was a wonderful player. And it's, it's just, I think a really interesting era um, to, to write about. And also one I had to be very mindful of. I took an awful lot of time on that chapter because when you're, you know, when you're writing about the challenging politics of a country that isn't yours, mm. you know, you, you've got to be pretty careful because you know what it's like when people write cringy stuff about Wales, you know, you spotted a mile off, can't you? Um, so yeah, so I think those three, I think were, were really interesting, but um, yeah, it was a privilege to, to, to sort of cover, you know, to cover such a, such a variety um, in there, but I'd probably choose, I'd probably choose those three if I had to choose, but if you ask me tomorrow, I might pick a couple, a couple of different ones. Yeah, and and I think you you know you handle the the political stuff really really well. It's uh, it's, it's superbly written. Um, to bring it back to some of the on the pitch uh, on the pitch matters now, because you know for all the for all the depth and, and complexity in there, there's lots of fun uh, kind of on the on the field exploits as well. Um, and yeah, one you, you mentioned there, obviously still playing today, played only yesterday, and that's and that's Finn Russell. I was going to ask you about players mm-hmm. like Finn Russell. Do you feel it's it's harder in this day and age, um, you know, in, in a uh, in an era where everything is kind of analysed to death? There's so much more data and things like that. It's so much harder to kind of be in that maverick mould. Or do you actually think that some coaches should, you know, should take more of a risk and um, and factor that into a side? Yeah, I mean, Finn Russell is a, is a special, you know, a special case. And, I, you know, I lost quite a lot of time on YouTube just looking at Finn Russell tries. You know, I mean, that's the for YouTube for this kind of book is a, an amazing resource, but it's not it doesn't half stuck the time away yeah. because you just, you know, you start looking up things and you, you find it. And there's some, you know, there's some brilliant, brilliant moments for Finn Russell. I really, you know, really enjoy, enjoy watching him. Um, I mean, he's quite interesting because he's he's not come from a usual he's not maybe come through the usual sort of system because, you know, he was a sort of trainee stonemason for a couple of years. You know, he had a normal, he had a normal job, you know, he played on the weekends with the boys kind of thing. And then he sort of stepped it up a bit and went out to New Zealand and then got a sort of development contract and sort of went that way. So he's, you know, he hasn't always been primed for, for superstardom like some players are. Um, and then obviously things like with his dad has, his, you know, his dad's kind of quite public bust up with the Scottish rugby football union, you know, if if I was playing for someone who'd quite publicly, quite brutally sacked my dad, I probably wouldn't feel 
quite as sort of connected. But yeah, I think he's a bit of an endangered species. Um, and I think he's obviously very confident on the pitch and, and off the pitch. Um, but I think there's players who probably have that confidence, but they just decide, you know what, it's not worth the hassle. Mm. You know, if you start if you start talking on social media about politics, if you're a rugby player or you know, or social issues, you know, your your timeline would blow up, probably. You know, you'd be known as you know, the left wing or right wing player or whatever. Um, and you'd probably be very heavily advised against it by your by your club and your country. So I think there's probably still quite a few maverick spirits out there, but I think a lot of them just decide it's you know, it's probably not worth the bother. Um I mean, I was watching a video earlier on of, of Joe Marler and, you know, I mean, he is, I suppose, a sort of a maverick. Oh, I think, I think he's better he is, really, yeah. You know, and there's not many like like him. I mean, he's, you know, he is what he is. He's certainly different. He's obviously got the confidence to be different. Um, and that's working for him as well, I think, because he does stand out from the crowd. But, yeah, I think a lot of players, I think just, I think because of the fairly conservative rugby system that people come through now, just get their head down and, you know, and just try and try and keep earning the money, try keep trying to keep taking along like a normal job for some of them, I think. Particularly when it comes to the on the pitch stuff, it, it does make me a little bit concerned that you know your next book is going to be rugby's greatest box kickers or or um, <laughs> or, or something like that. It's like you know it's it's a great it's a great game for um it's a great game for people of all shapes and sizes and you know all those kind of rugby cliches. But at the same time, you know I do, I do worry sometimes about the about the entertainment of rugby, you know, and and perhaps the the overcoaching and things like that. I don't know if that's just. Um, yeah, kind of uh, nostalgia and uh, and stuff like that, or, or perhaps there, yeah. there is there is a there is a problem on, on those things. What, what do you think, kind of, with regards to you know rugby as a as a as a source of entertainment in a world that's full of entertainment? Yeah, it's a good a good question. I, I, um, I think it is. I think it is challenging, um, and I think it's obviously as as all the, the Welsh listeners to this to this pod will know, you know, there's a, there's obviously a big debate at the moment about the WIU and, you know, how it's run um, and the match day experience at the Millennium Stadium, oh, sorry, Principality Stadium, um, especially yeah, then in, in call contrast. It, call it the Millennium. <laughs> yeah, I've never called it the Principality, I don't think. Um, it would, it would and take then, a very know, big check from Principality for me to do that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you know, comparing it to, to to the football to the football side, and I think you know, I think I think that discussion is is quite interesting, mm. and I think there's a merit to it, but I also think it's quite a destructive <laughs> discussion in Wales when you've actually got two pretty good teams, and some people seem quite happy to sort of snipe against each other. Um, but in terms of entertainment, yeah, I think it's you know, I think it's a, I think it's a challenge. Um, you know, you think of the players that you know you we all liked when you were, we were kids. It tends to be you know, players with that with that bit of personality and with a bit of flair. Um, and I think if they're not around in the game, I think that that present does present some, you know, that does present some problems. Um, in the, I spoke to uh, 
David Campesi um, for his chapter, and he, he very kindly wrote the forward. And uh, he was, you know, exactly how you'd imagine he would be, you know, very forthright. And he, he's definitely concerned, and particularly from the, the Australia, with his Australian hat on, where there's, there's Aussie rules, there's rugby league, you know, there's soccer, cricket, union, and basketball, that, you know, kids are being sort of squeezed out by it. It's, you know, it's it's a product like any other. Um but on the other hand, I, I don't think, you know, I think you need to keep a lot of what's unique in rugby. You know, I don't think, for example, the Welsh Rugby Union should just cut and paste the, the Football Association experience and apply it to the the millennium because I don't think that would work either, you know. So it's a, it's a challenge, but I think too many people in rugby, and I say this as a Welsh fan, but I think you can see it in quite a bit of the countries, have been resting on laurels and have been, you know, coasting on, on you know, the players of old or the teams of old and the reputation of old and not looking forward enough. And I think we see that little bit of that in the book as well, yeah. Yeah, it's, the, you know, slightly off, off topic, but you're absolutely right because I think you've touched on some really interesting stuff there. Copy and pasting the the the, the football experience for for the simply wouldn't work. The reason it works so well for football and and you know cast your mind back not that long ago and the football you know was arguably a bit of a laughing stock. You know you know well, I think we, we all remember the losing to Leighton Orient and all those those bizarre things like foot, Welsh football was something of a was a was an oddity, wasn't it? Like French cricket or something and. Um, uh, and that's mad, you know, for a country that's produced some of the, the greatest players the world has ever seen. But what they, I think, what they've done so well is they have embraced a a vision of Welshness and got hold of it and said, "This is what we stand for as a um, uh, as a football team." And you know, these are the elements of the nation that we're really going to embrace, and it's going to feed into into the match day territory. And they've done an incredible job. You know, you think. You think to there is there are some pretty big divisions within Welsh football. You know that you yeah. you will know very well that you know the the Swansea Cardiff um, rivalry and and how yeah. that's manifested itself at Welsh football games in uh, you know kind of many many years ago. Um, they, they've done a fantastic job of that, and and the reason they've done it is because it's real and authentic. It's not oh right well you know we saw this you know we saw this that the French did and we saw this that. Uh, that someone else did it, it, you know it, it's a really clear committed vision and that's what that's what for me Welsh Rugby Union has to has to uh, get to the bottom of is look what what do we stand for as a um as a as a sporting body how do we want that to be reflected in the in the match day experience and you know you have heard Murph moaning at paying 130 quid a, a ticket to have Mr Brightside Blared, you know, blared out at him when you can't hear the the tributes to Phil Bennett and Eddie Butler, people who've made massive contributions to to Welsh rugby. And I think that's um, that, that, there's no there's no quick answer to it, but I, I think they're going to have to they're going to have to find that sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I, th- I think you know to go back to sort of the Maverick spirit is that I think I think Welsh rugby hasn't always been a supporter of you know of of your big personalities. Mm. Um, it, you know, it doesn't always like them. I think. Uh, I think sometimes they emerge, but they tend to come from overseas. I mean, you know, Warren Gatland, who was obviously on the show a few weeks ago, is one. I think Graham Henry would be would be another. Um, but you know, talking about Gravel earlier on, I mean, you know, Carwin, you know, never coaching Wales was was a great example of that. And I think that I think, and the you know, the vote to the WIU board what, what two weeks ago or so is. Is is the same kind of acceptance? So we don't care. We don't really want anyone to rock the boat too much. Um, 
and I think, yeah, I think I think that's a I think that's a problem for Welsh rugby, and I think it needs to you know it needs to look quite closely at that and and wonder why um, because we've we've got you know we've got the players you know we've got a good we've always got a decent pool of players in in, in Wales, but have we got the actual sort of personalities and leadership to actually make them do something? I'm not too sure we have at the moment. Let's talk about uh, one more player who certainly rocked the boat when it came to Welsh rugby and is a, a character that I am absolutely fascinated by, and that's Mr. Mr. David Bishop. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, just you know, I, I, I really, you know, I, I particularly enjoyed that chapter. Um, what, uh, yeah, I mean, what, what do you just, what do you make of the the whole Die Bishop story? Yeah, and again, you know, talking to people in in, in South Wales. You know, people have opinions on him. Uh, people have their own stories on him mm-hmm. as well, uh, which aren't in the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, a wonderful, you know, a wonderful player. Um, the I, I think I, I write kind of at length about it in the in the chapter. But the um, the game against Swansea, where he you know he slots those kicks from miles out in the rain, is such a you know a wonderful clip on YouTube where you know it's still industrial South Wales it's you know it's still moustaches and you know long extinct beers being advertised and the, the pitch is awful and there's some terrible fouls but nothing's given and then he you know he slots his kick and then he he wiggles his ass in front of the selectors you know and he's, he's it's a brilliant moment you know and then um, but yeah you know again absolutely you know fascinating character um very complex again you know complex sort of life you know he, it, it, rugby did sort of offer him a guidance and you know mr prosser at, at pontypool obviously sort of has shaped him a lot um i think it's interesting with him what you know what would have happened if he'd been born well 20 years later i suppose you know if he if he'd come through the in, you know as a professional i don't know is the answer to that i mean he had the skills without a doubt, to be wonderful. But he was always marked. He was always a marked man. And I think to go back to what we were just saying about the Welsh establishment, not liking the people who are going to rock the boat, he was very clear he was going to rock it. So, Well, one of the things fascinating about that question as well, you know, William made it 20 years later is, you know, my gut instinct to that is um, he was just so talented he would have. And I say that having never seen him play rugby, I, I vaguely remember a few games of rugby league watching him play. But he was pretty, he was, you know, kind of. Yeah. I know, I know he, reti- he retired in the in the nineties, didn't he? Um, but it, you know, I, I yeah. don't remember. I don't remember any of that. And all the folklore is the is the stuff from the eighties. And in a way, that's what's brilliant about it is it's is it's mm-hmm. the myth and the legend and and you're going on what people told you because it's an era. You know, you can't go back and live stream uh, Ponapool versus uh, you know versus Triorki in from from the early 90s on premier sports you know it's it's all there all the all the um the myth around it in, in a way i just think kind of adds to adds to the romance and in a way it doesn't it doesn't matter whether he whether he would have made it or not the you know i i'm fully bought into the cult that he would have <laughs> yeah oh yeah i mean the stories are great him him rescuing the the mother who'd slipped into the the swollen taff with the with the pram with a buggy in and him getting in and getting her out and then getting getting awarded his medal while he was <laughs> on remand I think the prison governor giving him like the 
the Queen's Medal for Bravery or something. I mean, you know, you couldn't, you sort of couldn't make it up. But yeah, you know, a brilliant player, you know, great, great fun writing it. But again, another sort of quite complex sort of, you know, sort of character. Um, it's funny, like I, I interviewed quite a lot of old players for, for this book and it's always great to have a chat about, you know, their career or the, the career of a, a, a teammate if, you know, if the teammate sort of passed away. And I always say, like, as a final question, so would you, you know, would you like to have played today if you'd been born 20, 30, 40 years later, and they pretty much all say no. Mm. Um, because, I mean, the fun factor, as they always talk about, you know, the tours, you know, speaking of Donald Lanahan and, you know, Steve Fenwick and people like that about the, the tours sounded great, you know, great fun with the, the journalists out with them, you know, no social media, no photos. Uh, so those are great fun. And then the injuries aspect as well. You know, a few of them have said, I wouldn't. You know, I've got aches. You know, I've got aches and pains now, but I played for twenty years. I'm sixty-seven now. I'm all right, but wouldn't be. You know, wouldn't be now. So no, I don't think any of them said. I think David Campesi said, "I'd still be bloody good." Yeah, that's what he said to me if he was playing there, which you know he would be. Do, do you um, know what? That, that's that's one yeah. that you don't need. You don't need to piece together. Having watched enough of him, he just he simply would have been because I think he. You know, for all of the the swagger and bravado. He strikes me, and I, and I may be making this up, but he strikes me as someone who would have been able to embrace modern training methods if he thought it made him better, you know, and and it would have. And I think he would have just had that that raw instinct and self belief and flair to bit to to thrive in a you know in the modern era. Oh yeah, yeah, he was a big trainer. Um, you know, he was ahead of the game on that. He wasn't a drinker mm. as well. Quite a big drinking culture back then, and he wasn't you know wasn't into that. So yeah, and I think I think the myth. You know the myth of some of these guys. We've got Moss Moss Keane in there as well, as an Irish player from the eighties, and he's you know he's quite interesting because he played GA and played Union. That's that's maybe a, something for another podcast. But you know his reputation was of being like a big pints man, you know, and being out out on the lash all the time. And I think when he like a lot of these boys, when he you know when he got stuck into the pub, you know there would be quite a few pints and it would be a big night. But the idea that these boys are having you know ten pints a night in the 70s and 80s this isn't you know this isn't true they could, they're doing five mile runs before work and stuff like that you know even even in the amateur era in the sort of 80s when things were still pretty loose yeah still very very you know still very very committed um but yeah you know it's a, it's a fascinating to think how these boys would be now um I, i'd love to see it you know i'd love to see it but we never will well talking of things i'd love to see but we never will um the Andy Ripley chapter um, uh, I found really, really entertaining and um, actually not a player I knew a huge amount about. Um, superstars had clearly passed me had clearly passed me by because, again, I, I fell into that trap of just thinking about <laughs> Kevin Keegan falling off his bike. Um, yeah. So I had no idea he'd, you know, he had been, you know, the, uh, a kind of household name through Superstars. What I would love to get your take on, Luke, and I'm putting you on the spot slightly, mm-hmm. If we were able to commission a rugby version of Superstars today, who do you think would be the stars, and kind of what disciplines would they uh, would they oh. see that? Um, so yeah, so for 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 our, for our listeners who don't know what Superstars is, it was a show that was in the sort of late seventies, early eighties, and got a bit of a reboot about fifteen years ago. Yeah, I, I think. remember the reboot in the early noughties. Yeah sort of sports sportsmen from different disciplines competed against each other so you'd have like you know an athlete a footballer a skier rugby player and they'd all be competing against each other in like running and other things like that um i would i would say i reckon luke charteris would be good at basketball great shout great shout that yeah 
I reckon. Um, I reckon if we're going sort of like middle distance, like running, running all day, I go for someone like Tipperick. Mm-hmm. I reckon at a pace, but I think just keeps keep going. Um, I, I, I don't would like know. To see, I'd like no. to see Josh Navidi uh, embrace his, uh, his father's wrestling skills because there is something about that man that just has pure, uh, like kind of inherited strength. Do you know what I mean? For a guy who, yeah, yeah of course, he, you know, he, he works incredibly hard at his physique, but there is something there that is natural ox-like strength. And I think any, yeah, any kind of like wrestling type discipline, he would be fantastic at. Yeah, like like Tyson Fury, sort of generation after generation of boxer. There's a bit of it you just can't, you know, you just can't vouch for. I think you, I think it would be great to great to bring it back. I think, I think, I think the players, you know, get the insurance and the players would would embrace. It. I don't know about cycling. You have to be looking at scrum half or something for cycling, wouldn't you? And you Thomas Williams or someone like someone oh, like Rob t- Howley in the day. Yeah, that would that's a good show. Yeah. Would have I been mean, good at cycling, I reckon. Thomas again is a is a keen basketball player, isn't he? I believe. Um, yeah. As, as was Richie Collins. Chuck him and Charteris into the mix. You know, we could we could have ourselves um could have ourselves a a, 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 Welsh, a fictional Welsh rugby equivalent of the Chicago Bulls here. I reckon. <laughs> I, without any evidence, I feel that I feel like Ken Owens would be good at darts. You know, I mean, he should be as a hooker, but he's got the look about him, isn't he? That he'd just be. He'd be he'd be good at darts. I yeah, reckon. he would but, work as a darts character, wouldn't he? You know, he's got the nickname the sheriff as well. You know, that would be absolutely magnificent. And he's a young man called Ken as well, yeah. which aren't, there aren't many of them around, are there? But I tell you what, we talked about WWE getting a lot of criticism, but I think, actually think their social media videos have actually gotten a bit better recently. Yeah. So maybe they could do a sort of a superstars style um, show, and we can get a bit of credit for it. Hey, look! I pay 130 quid a ticket to watch that. Uh, mark, mark, mark my words, I'll be—you can pump all the Mr. Brightside you like at me, and I'll—I'll um, I'll be on board with that. Look, it's been—it's been fantastic chatting to you. As I say, I really, really enjoyed the book. Uh, just for our listeners who haven't got a copy yet, obviously Christmas is—is uh, is around the corner. Uh, where can you get hold of the? Where can you get hold of the book? Yeah, I mean, thanks, thanks for having me on. Yeah, really, really enjoyed enjoyed talking about it, and you know, hope hope everyone listening has got a sort of a little bit of a flavour of it. Um, yeah, I mean, available in wherever you get your books, basically. So, um, independent bookshops will order it for you if they don't have it on the shelves. Um, Waterstones, Smiths, uh, Foils, um, large the large uh, the large retailer, online retailer, the world's largest online retailer uh, also has it. Um, so it's on there as well. Um, but yeah, kind of wherever you get your books, um, shout out to uh, Cover to Cover in Mumbles, which some of you will know had the book launch there a couple of weeks ago. Um, great bookshop, like independent bookshop, family run place. So if you're in, uh, if you're in sort of Mumbles, Swansea way, um, pop in there so they can have a copy but yeah everywhere you get your books um and i think we'll have a little maybe we'll do a little competition for the for the listeners yeah, as well we absolutely will yeah luke's very kindly uh given us some copies to give away uh so keep your eyes on social media later this week and we'll be running a competition really really straightforward uh where you just retweet and tell us your favorite uh your favorite rugby mavericks and uh yeah this will be some good crowdsourcing for uh, for the sequel 
yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's really, really good fun to, to write and yeah, appreciate everyone who's sort of supported us on it and all the rugby players who've actually replied to like a, a tweet or a, a LinkedIn message or an email from just some random guy and they've actually given up some time to speak to me. It's been a it's been a pleasure. So yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully you guys will enjoy it as well. If you like your if you like your rugby on the characterful side, hopefully it'll be uh, interesting for you. It will, yeah. And as I say, with that with that sequel, we look forward to seeing Matthew Morgan, who was criminally overlooked for this edition for some reason, because it would be it'd be, <laughs> it'd be too easy to write about the uh, the mercurial talents. Uh, Luke, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, yeah, we'll be back to chat rugby with you very very soon. Podcast Network.